that tribe, that team first mentality, that want to look after your mates is it's born from hardship. It's born from death and dying. It's born from doing those hard yards, wanting to look after everyone around me before myself. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is in my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out on your That was their job. I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where you know you were going to funerals quite Do often. I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, or what can you do for your country? The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. And Plater is a veteran of the Second Commando Regiment. The former Special Forces operator served in the Australian Defence Force for 27 years, 17 of which were with the commandos. He deployed to Somalia, Bougainville, East Timor, Iraq and Afghanistan, served in the Tactical Assault Group East and was the counter-terrorism advisor to the Australian Federal Police. Today, he's a high-performance consultant for the Canberra Raiders and an advocate for the Commando Welfare Trust. Ant spoke with me over Zoom with his dog sometimes piping up in the background during the chat. We spoke about his journey to the army and special forces, some of his deployments, the idea of tribe, and being a leader at the tip of the spear. Welcome to Life on the Line. I'm Alex Lloyd, speaking over Zoom today with Ant Plater. Ant, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Alex. We've been trying to catch each other for a while now, so it's good to finally uh, catch up and have a decent conversation. Great to finally have you on, Mike. So, Ant, let's go right back to the start. Where did you grow up? That's a really interesting question for me. So I was born in Griffith, New South Wales, and then uh, I think about the age of three, I moved into, or with my folks, moved to Sydney from the age of about five till I was about sort of early teens, um, pretty much on the road. So my, my folks are chefs, so we, we travelled Australia, spent some time in Tasmania, uh, some time in Perth, and then probably those early teens, probably till I, up until I joined the Army, I was in Catherine in the Northern Territory. So I guess quite fortunate to see a lot of Australia you know, as a young kid, which was an amazing experience. Yeah, it's quite a varied, well-rounded, life experience filled childhood when you start to gravitate towards that military interest in your uh, late teens you were saying do you know where that comes from like do you have family military history or did you always just find a sort of that natural boyhood interest in soldiering and military stuff or a combination i guess my, my dad and one of my uncles uh were in the army and then uh spent some time in the regulars regular army and then they transferred to army reserve didn't go to vietnam but i guess the biggest influence was from my uh, uncle don so he was an infantryman, served in Korea, Malaya, Borneo, and Vietnam. And he sort of, I think he got out sort of early 80s, but even before he got out, uh, and then when he got out, we had some really solid, robust conversations about military service, what it was all about. Yeah, so that was probably my biggest influence was Michael Don um, uh, and, and his sort of, you know, leading, leading me direction into you know, joining the Army perhaps. Did your uncle, because that's quite an extensive service record, did he talk about some of his experiences with you when you were growing up or did that more happen a bit later in life, um, perhaps once you put on the uniform? Yeah, probably a little bit of both. So I spent some time with Uncle Don uh, once he retired. 
he lived um, at Canungra, funny enough. He had a, a, a property up there. We spoke a little bit about um, his time away, but he didn't speak a lot about uh, his deployments. Um, it was mainly about sort of when he was, you know, uh, a CSM in 3RR and then went on to be um, promoted to one of class one. And he spoke about sort of the transition time and the army was transitioning from greens into camouflage uniform. He was telling me about he was involved with the first trials of camouflage and all the different aspects and R&D that was the research and development that was involved. So he sort of skimmed a lot. I'm pretty sure he carried a fair bit of baggage from those deployments. So he didn't sort of touch a great deal, but enough to sort of spike my interest in like, you know, this is something I really want to invest some time in and, and, and perhaps join as, as a young kid. Did you get to learn enough, even if not from his own mouth, sort of what, which engagements or what areas of career he might have been in? And you can your own reading on that as such or is it all a bit of still of a mystery to you it's all still a bit of a mystery like i've spoken to my auntie a little bit don's no longer with us yeah it's not it's not a great deal of information and i've, I've done my own sort of research a little bit through the australian war memorial um and through you know information that my parents have given me and his don's brothers and sisters so as i said there was enough interest there and you know he was a really proud man you know a really um regimental soldier I, i'd say well, from my perspective he was even though he you know, back in those days, um, you know, deployments and stuff. So, but I always remember he was very, uh, very proud of his service, um, you know, the achievements he, he achieved whilst, whilst he was in uh, in uniform. And, uh, you know, I still pay, you know, obviously my respects to him, you know, through his service and my service. So it was a good time. Yeah, it was a good time to sort of reflect on, on his service. And was your dad a cook in the army or did the chef trade come after hanging up the uniform or when he went reserves? No, he was a cook in the army. So he, um, I think back then, back then they could do their trade, and then um, once he got out, he, you know, all the, I guess the qualifications he didn't have, he went and did an abridged version of a chef's apprentice apprenticeship, and then um, got fully qualified, and then spent about close to about 45, 50 years in in the industry. Well, I'm sure he found that gratifying compared to cooking in the mess versus, um, you know, what you might do in the back kitchens of a nice restaurant. But uh, that sounds great that the army, and that's something they promote today, that you can learn skills and trades and then transfer that into the real world. So. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's one of the strengths of, you know, time and service is, you know, taking those skills that you learn and transferring them to, you know, civilian skills so you can, you know, get out and um, hit the ground running, so to speak. So what year is it that you put your own hand up, Ant? Initially in 1987, I actually applied to join the Navy. Went through all the testing, got to the end and they said I wasn't successful. I said, no dramas, that's fair enough. Um, went back to school for a little bit and then I reapplied sort of mid um, 1988 and was accepted. Very quickly found myself on the bus down to uh, Kapuka in October 88. <laughs> so yes, you so you disembark and you change. Was that just you realising the army was perhaps a better fit for you or um, you just didn't like the seasick lifestyle? To be honest, I'm not really sure what drew me. I think uh, maybe it was further engagement with my uncle or maybe it was just, right, the Navy doesn't want me. I'm going to try the army now. And, you know, perhaps I should have joined the Army, you know, initially without sort of looking at the Navy. I just, yeah, there was some interesting stuff that looked interesting in the Navy initially. Obviously didn't get accepted. So, um, you know, found myself at Kapuka with dragging my bag up to up to the lines straight off the bus with a recruit instructor in my face. Yeah, I think, yeah, uh, expletives at me pretty quickly. Yeah, so the late 80s, uh, 
the good old days will be regarded by many, I'm sure. So what are some of those highlight memories you have from that? Being yelled at, a lot of PT and learning all the basic skill sets that would become the cornerstone of your life for years to come. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, I was a young kid. I think I was the youngest or second youngest in the platoon. I, well, my birthday's in September, so I was like 17 and about four weeks old at the time. So everything was just, it was this massive steep learning curve, for example, like learning to shave and, you know, morning routine and having to eat like a large meal in about 30 seconds flat so you could, you know, be outside mind up so they could yell at you again you know, weapons lessons and field craft and PT and, and all that sort of stuff. So it was a little bit of a blur. Like I had a good bunch of guys in my room and stuff who, who sort of put me under their wing and, and dragged me along. But, you know, a lot of those lessons back then created the man that I am today and, and, and through my service. You know, I really hold those lessons, you know, close to my heart. You know, it was, it was I think at the time you sort of, you're a bit startled and it's information overload. But, you know, looking back now, there's some really valuable lessons and, you know, I recommend, recommend it to any young kids who maybe, you know, not necessarily have direction sorted in, in their life at this stage and just go and sign up for four years and do your time. You can learn some valuable skills, get a bit of finance behind you. If you decide to stay on and continue on, you know, great. If, if not, you know, you've still got that, that experience behind you and, you know, you can take those lessons with you for the rest of life. Well, it sounds like you have an immediate natural affinity for it. Do you go down the infantry route when it's up to initial employment training? Yeah, absolutely. That was where I wanted to be. I didn't really think about any other corps, to be honest. Um, you know, I guess influenced by Don again. We only had one, from memory, we only had one infantry instructor in the platoon. And, you know, at the time, it's not really a focus until you get to sort of your core enlistment um, choices. And then it quickly became apparent, you know, who the infantry guys were and, even before we allocated our cause, we sort of formed little um, discussion groups and, you know, I guess our own little bond of guys who wanted to go infantry within the platoon at the time. It's interesting, though, that you've grown up with this influence from your dad and your uncle and they all have their various service histories and you're looking back as far as the early 1950s for some of that. And then you're joining the late 80s, sort of the tail end of what is now referred to as the long peace period. And I guess you're, you're joining up at a time where nothing's happened for a while. The instructors you had, if they've had some experience, it was a while ago. So they'll be also, you know, having some gray hairs uh, sprouting. Was that a concern to you or you just figured something would come along at one point i hadn't really thought about it but it's something that i've dwelled on and and thought about and and written about you know in my own diaries and stuff which is is so true like you know coming out of uh, i guess vietnam end of 75 and then you know essentially the adf didn't go anywhere till somalia which was in 93 so you've got you know close to what 18 or 19 years of being a peacetime defense force and a peacetime army um and the effect that had I think the pace was so quick at recruit training and IETs that, you know, operational experience wasn't, or opportunities to deploy wasn't really um, apparent. You just wanted to survive the day. You just wanted to survive the week. You just want to survive the course and then go on to the next course. And then, you know, obviously out of, rolled out of Kapuka up to Singleton for infrastructure IETs. And then um, that was another, okay, I've just got to survive this. It's 13 weeks. Um, my section commander was a really hard guy from 3RR who absolutely beasted us every day. But again, some super valuable lessons. And uh, he really taught us what being an infantry soldier was about. You know, it was about being robust. It was about being able to think on your feet. It was about being able to, you know, problem solve. It was about, you know, mateship. It was about looking after your, 
you know, you're operating in the pit before you're looking after yourself. So, um, you know, I've still got my notebooks full of notes and stuff that, um, you know, he passed on to us. And obviously the, you know, the lessons that you went through at um, School of Infantry. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's an it was definitely an interesting time. Like not a lot of operational experience was spoken about because there was no, there's, there's that generation of soldiers who didn't deploy anywhere. You know, there was the sort of odd trip here and there, but task force or unit level, there just was no was no deployments until we um, rolled into Somalia in 93. And so we're at this point where you're in your late teens, coming into your early 20s, you've found somewhere that's just at home for you, you've got purpose, you're loving life, and you're learning all these great character-building lessons. We've referred to Somalia a couple of times, that rolls around. What are your first memories of sort of hearing about there's a deployment and you're going to be part of it and it's to this country had you heard of Somalia? Did you know where that was on the map? To be honest, no. Like the battalion was actually on leave from December 92. I just finished up my time in uh, Charlie Company 1. I um, was posted internal posting to um, Recon Platoon, which was, you know, again, I was super junior. Like I was still wet behind the ears, still learning my trade as a, as a, as a rifleman. And then um, the opportunity came to, you know, within sort of two or three years of service to, to go to Recon Platoon, which I absolutely launched at because I, I loved you know, the court doing the recon course and stuff. So Somalia sort of came on the horizon. We were all on leave. So I was in Tennant Creek in the Northern Territory visiting my parents who were contractors at the Tennant Creek gold mine. You know, obviously this is pre-mobile phones and, you know, having a landline or mobile phone in your pocket or whatever. So a telegram uh, arrives in the mail <laughs> saying, um, you know, make your way back to Townsville, best speed, uh, jump on this flight, make this booking, you know, use this reference number. So yeah, it was just like, wow, this is this is going down. And then I sort of started to see it on the news, and it was becoming a big talking point. Again, I had one or two days, and I was back in Townsville. And then from that point on, it was just you know it was con- confirmed pretty quick that we were going. And Alpha Company were to embark on the Tobruk to to head over. Um, I think they left Christmas Eve. I think in fact they embarked on Tobruk and then um, set sail for Somalia. And the rest of us sort of started to trickle in from mid to late January and I think the battalion was complete on the ground in sort of early February. So um, there wasn't a lot of time, to be honest. It was just, um, and, you know, battalion life sets you up for that structure anyway, like there's, you know, DP1 checks and deployment checks and, you know, you've got to have every, all your files and your, your dog tags and all that sort of basic deployment stuff all lined up. And we were the operational deployment battalion at the time online with, with one RR and two four sort of taking in turn. So, you know, we were prepared to deploy, but in terms of going into a place like Somalia, again, steep learning curve. And I was actually, because I was so junior in, in, in reconnaissance platoon, like generally this first appointment in, in the platoon is as the patrol SIG. So, you know, carrying, you know, radio equipment, heavy pack, blah, blah, blah. On the eve of us deploying the patrol scout, rolled his ankle very, very badly and basically had to stay behind. So I was quickly shuffled from Patrol SIG up to Patrol Scout in a short space of time. So, again, that was a steep learning curve for me. But my patrol commander, God by the name of Giles Blackman, he was fantastic. Like, he, he was just a real leader and we still speak today. So, you know, he sort of really had the patrol finely tuned for, for operations in Somalia or as much as we could be without sort of knowing um, a great deal about the place. And the wider mission is to provide humanitarian aid and support for the local population and ensure things aren't getting escalating too out of hand there, essentially. What does that then translate for your platoon and what you're doing in a day-to-day level? Are you patrolling? Uh, 
What's your day-to-day life like there? So we were tasked with the largest threat was, the, you know, I guess what they call, what they were termed back then was bandits. What we call now is you know, terrorists or terrorism. To so us being able to deliver food to the towns and villages that needed it. So our um, job was to conduct observation posts, conduct uh, close reconnaissance on the track systems to make sure that, you know, these bandits weren't uh, infiltrating or, you know, after we'd done a food, food or after the rifle companies had done their food distribution, we'd be sort of stayed behind, you know, covertly in an OP just to observe for, you know, 6, 12, 24 hours just to see what the pattern of life was post a food distribution. So if, we, you know, if, if bandits were coming to down and, you know, holding, um, you know, people at their will and taking the food, you know, then we could then report that and the battalion could act on, on that information that we we're providing. So, you know, staying, um, I guess, undetected or, or covert in Somalia was the biggest challenge because, you know, obviously the, the farmers and stuff were pretty much anywhere and, and, and wanted through their own world. There was no sort of pattern of life to say, you know, occupy this high ground and conduct an observation post and there's a good chance of staying covert because they pretty much wandered everywhere. So that was, you know, probably our biggest challenge. The threat of IEDs or, or mines, we didn't really call them IEDs back then, it was just mines. I mean, there was a lot of research done, you know, prior to our deployments into Somalia and, you know, what previous occupation it had looked like. And there was a mine threat there. We didn't come across any, thankfully, but, you know, that was always, you know, in the back of your mind in terms of, you know, the next step you take and, and all that sort of stuff. So it was an interesting time. Is there a particular moment that stood out to you at the time or you look back on in reflection where you've been doing this job for a few years and you've got probably some expectations and impressions of what it might have been like through your uncle and your dad and then it clicks for you, I'm here, I'm a soldier, I'm representing Australia and uh, thankfully it's not in a war zone in the sense of something like Korea or Vietnam, but you're representing the country and getting to do the job you signed up for. Did you have that kind of thought process or emotion at any point? I think every time that we went out on on a job, um, you know, whether it was us as a patrol or sometimes we'd do joint patrol operations or sometimes we'd the whole platoon would go out, you know, vehicle mounted, etc. Every time that we rolled outside the front gate, it was like, okay, this is what soldiering is about, you know, this is what operations is about. So there was always a sense of this is soldiering, like I'm at the pinnacle of my career. You know, I hadn't really done a lot of research or, you know, uh, thought process into special forces or doing selection or anything like that. So it was just like I'm at the top, I'm at the, top of the game here. I'm in reconnaissance between one RER doing the job. So that was at the forefront of every thought, every mission, every patrol, every time we rolled out, you know, the front gate, whether it was into the township of Baidoa or whether it was, you know, observation posts or cluster constants on the track systems villages really surrounding, you know, your game face was on. When we left Australia, you know, there was no time frame given, you know, you're going for six months, you're going for four months. Um, and we were there with a, a French-Canadian armoured unit or uh, platoon or course line, I think that was a small course line, so that was cool. Like we were in Mogadishu and got to go to the CPX and, you know, mixed with some other nations. Like there were some Italians there and, you know, the French Canadians and the, the Canadian guys. So before we knew it, the Qantas 747 um, was flying into wow. Mogadishu, which is quite bizarre to fly us all home. So it was, yeah, again, it was a quick transition, you know, time to go, pack your gear, wash your gear, back to Mogadishu, some time on the ground. Um, we're back on the plane. We're back in Townsville pretty quick. I don't recall a lot of the reception. You know, obviously, 
you know, families and, and wives, girlfriends meeting us at the airport. You know, it was a, it was a big moment. Everyone getting reunited. Uh, we quickly went on some went on some leave, and then all oh, right, we're going to get the um, you know the infantry combat badge. We're going to get the AASM, and you know all this sort of stuff was mentioned. So this is in the first half of the nineties. Four RARs about to be re-raised as a commander regiment in the 1996-97. That process starts to kick off, and you just mentioned then that you hadn't started to think about special forces so much because if you were, your options on the menu are. First Commander Regiment part-time, so not really an option for what you're doing, or the Special Air Service Regiment over on the West Coast. When do you turn your eye to the Special Forces game in general, and is that first with commandos once that starts to kick off again? Yeah, so within that, you know, recon sniper return, we had some absolute outstanding soldiers. And, you know, before my time, during my time, and then, you know, obviously after I left, I mean, I sort of posted back in and out of recon platoon doing, you know, a, a two ICs role. And then my last three years in, in recon, sort of 96 to 98, um, back as a patrol commander. In that space of time, there's a lot of guys going off to do selection for Perth. You know, so seeing, I guess, those guys roll out, you know, doing their 18, 20 or day uh, selection, coming back to the unit, started to tweak a little bit of interest, I, I, I guess, in terms of, well, this is, what's this, you know, special forces stuff about? It's the next step. And I guess everyone goes, well, I've, you know, I've ticked the box in terms of what I want to achieve in the battalion. I'm still young enough. Um, I don't necessarily want to get posted out. You know, I'm a, I'm a junior NCO. It's either, you know, the School of Infantry or, or back down to Kapuka uh, are my options. So I think it was around about 97, 98 when some guys, when I guess, for our commando was starting to be raised and guys were going away and doing commando selection. Um, I think the first one was end of 97, uh, perhaps start of 98. Yeah, I think I think around then because, um, yeah, I've and you're not the first Somalia veteran who went to commandos in those early 90 years I spoke with. I like Bram Connolly, Wes Hennessy. There was, there's a common trait here that's interesting, but carry on. So you're, you're not quite in the first round then, but you hear about it going. So, I mean, I, I was enjoying my time as being a, a recon patrol commander. I mean, we had a, um, an SAS squadron commander who was our company commander. He was a big influence on, on us and, you know, giving us, you know, you know, extra training and weapons training and stuff to upskill us as, as recon soldiers. 97 recon platoon went to Perth for two weeks and we were the guards on the um, interrogation course. So the guys had finished their, the SAS guys had finished their selection. They quickly go and do combat survival and then they go into, it's about a week of interrogation training and recon platoon went over as, I guess, the guards or op four or enemy or whatever, you know, you want whatever term you want to use it. So that was really interesting mixing with SSR, NCOs, junior NCOs, senior NCOs, some of the officers who were sort of running training and their influence uh, or them trying to influence influence us to do selection and just seeing what the guys went through. And again, it was, you know, a lot of these guys I'd sort of spent time in, in recon platoon with, um, like Blaine Didham's, um, you know, a couple of other guys who are still serving. You know, that they'd sort of spent time with us in recon between going off and doing did SA selection, and then you know, we're bumping into these guys again on this interrogation course. So, there was a whole core of us, you know, I guess, group of us who were same similar peer group. You know, one of us, or well, some of us went to do SA selection, and others, including myself, went down the commando stream, but we're all of the same milk you know, born out of uh, a, a very talented recon platoon from, from one hour and snipers as well. So, 
it's interesting to look back on the names and see where guys are now in those influential positions still serving or out and are successful in the business world. Indeed, it breeds uh, quite an alumni that uh, you're a part of. And then and what are your memories or experiences of that commando selection process? It's famous or infamous, I suppose. And uh, how do you recall those days? You know, I, I trained extremely hard for that because I'd sort of come out of the back of finished my time as a patrol commander in, in recon, was posted to the School of Infantry as a as an instructor, sort of end of 98. And then um, that sort of cemented, it was like, okay, I'm going to use my downtime here at Singleton to train for selection. And it was like the home of the infantrymen. So it was the, there was no better place to pack march and train and bleed information off the PDIs about physical preparation, all this sort of stuff. So going on selection was fairly comfortable and confident in, in my ability to get through. I mean, there's always challenges that you don't sort of aren't aware of. And as like most guys, we focus on the physical preparation, but I was fortunate enough to speak to some guys who said, you know, make sure you mentally prepare yourself as well. You know, do some research on mental and, and mental toughness and resilience and, and mindset, because that's the part that's going to be most challenged for someone like yourself on, on selection. And yeah, I was, I was fortunate enough to get get through reasonably unscathed. So quickly um, onto, I guess, the reinforcement cycle and then um, into the world as a, uh, a full-time commando. It's one of those things where, besides the case of injury, normally the mind gives up far before the body, but you were forearmed with that thought process, went in, get through that, and then you're a fully-fledged commando. And Australia's had a few more deployments during the 90s, uh, mostly in the name of peacekeeping. You've probably got Timor around the corner now by this point in the timeline. So how's the uh, commander career looking for you at this early point, just sort of pre-9-11? Obviously, as you see with, you know, guys who do selection now, they're, they're reduced in rank. I think my selection was the last selection they did before we sort of uh, reset for um, East Timor. So I retained my rank and uh, another lad who um, passed selection with me, we both retained our rank. So were you corporal, lance corporals, sergeant? Uh, we'd been promoted to sergeant just prior to selection. And then, so we went on as, uh, I guess, on this uh, selection of senior NCOs. And then the battalion needed some patrol commanders, obviously, with, with some, some background, some experience. So I quickly learned that um, I was going to um, recon platoon. You know, we had about six months on the ground and then uh, quickly into East Timor. So, again, you know, there were some challenges there. I guess a new guy coming to the unit trying to mould a team together of, you know, senior guys who had been in the unit in various timeframes before me um, was a bit of a challenge. In terms of leadership, it, it definitely challenged my leadership style. And But I was really fortunate to have a really robust um, patrol 2IC. So I guess for force protection, our traditionally recon patrols are five to six men, you know, probably down to four if you need to. But for force protection, the structure of our patrols was nine men, which gave us the capacity to break down into two, like a five and a four uh, man team if we needed to. But essentially we rolled rolled out into the field probably 70%-ish of the time as a nine-man team. A lot of our tasks were observation onto the East Timor uh, Indonesian border. This is, you know, full deep camming up and stealth jungle movements and creatively rigging uh, communication equipment up trees to listen in and all these kind of shenanigans right absolutely overt observation posts you know winning winning water locally from the tactical control line which was a river 
um, between East Timor and Indonesia at the time. The weather conditions were extreme. Like most of the times we were repelling or inserting by helos and it was lay up, try and minimise water intake during the day, 35, you know, 40 degrees. Humidity was extreme. Uh, and anywhere from sort of seven to 10 and sometimes 14 days in the field with one or two resupplies or winning water locally was our task. Quite hard to stay uh, undetected. So generally part of your kit when you went field was, you know, make sure you had your blue cap in your, in your pocket. So if times were, you know, okay, we've been compromised, yet we've been compromised again. Okay, we're not really being effective, being covert. Let's clean the camouflage off our face, put our uh, United Nations caps on and our armbands and we'd go over it, um, which was still quite effective. We were still able to, uh, or we were effective in the field. We were still able to overtly conduct uh, observation onto the TCL, the tactical control line between Estonia and Indonesia. And we, you know, we were able to do some hearts and minds and gain some information from the villages as well in terms of they would you know, put us up for the night in, in one of their huts and, and feed us and discussions and information gathering took place um, overtly. That's a good fallback position. If uh, it's not quite working, you can just go from commando to peacekeeper and still project that force and have that on-the-ground presence, still gather some of that info. And what was it like with um, the local Timorese people, I imagine, very feeling reassured and happy to have you there and been that stabilizing factor uh, nothing but you know open hospitality to us you know they were they were very welcoming they had a lot of questions about you know our sort of long-term goals and you know what we wanted to achieve and again their you know passage of information wasn't great so they didn't know a lot with what was going on outside of their village or back down into the more populated, you know, places like Dili and stuff. So um, they'd be constantly asking us questions about, you know, what's happening here, what's happening there, and what are you guys doing? Can you influence this? Um, what are you doing about this situation? So, you know, patrol commanders or junior NCOs quickly had to shift to, you know, being able to educationally answer those, you know, those questions which were had a big impact on, you know, the way we conducted ourselves and operations um, in East Timor. Well, you are a thinking soldier in the way you have to be creative and have initiative with this kind of thing. So that's just a further extension of that to be able to talk diplomatically and informally so with uh, the local population. We spoke before about the work you were doing with Recon Platoon in Somalia, and now you're doing equivalent work, but at the commando level. And although the mission's different, the country's different, all those particulars aside, you're now doing it at that higher echelon. How did that compare for you? Different countries a few years later, but also just operating at that different echelon. I've reflected on this quite a number of times. And I think being in recon platoon in Somalia, um, humanitarian operations, even though we were conducting, you know, observation posts and close reconnaissance, you know, I guess being a private soldier and my focus was sort of here as opposed to being, you know, a senior NCO on a humanitarian operation in East Timor where my focus was out here. It's gone from a real narrow lens to a real wide lens, big picture. Absolutely. I've got all these resources. Uh, This is obviously East Timor. I've got, you know, nine men to think about, technology. We've got um, other SF organisations who are operating in and around us. You know, how do we deal with them? The complexities of leadership, platoon headquarters, our, our relationship with the rest of the battalion, our relationship with battalion headquarters. So I learned some really valuable lessons during that period of time. And again, being relatively new to the unit, as in for our commando, 
But there was a lot of, I had a lot of peers, you know, the Western Hennessy's, the Mick Slomans, the Bram Connolly's to sort of lean on and we bounced ideas around us at, at times. And, you know, my platoon sergeant, a guy by the name of Reese Dewar, extremely experienced, uh, you know, infantryman. And very well regarded today, very highly regarded. Reese is one of those guys who, you know, you don't need to, you know, maintain constant com- uh, conversational contact, but you always know you can rely on him. And he was our platoon sergeant and like, he was just, solid like you ever needed to bounce anything off him or you ever needed some feedback or you wanted to know where you stood Bruce would just give it to you uh he's you know obviously he's still extremely highly regarded in the commando community today so it was great having guys like that around just to sort of pick their brains and and just confide in at times in terms of leadership or leadership issues so really robust lessons learned so you get these great on-the-ground experiences in Timor, and then it's not too long after that the the world changes with the September 11 attacks, and I guess the remit of your job expands exponentially and sort of the potential for what that might mean. Obviously, as a country, we very quickly deploy uh, SAS over to Afghanistan, and the commandos, I can imagine you guys gearing up, getting ready for your turn in the sandpit, so to speak. And then it all really sort of kicks off there with the raising of the tactical assault group East Counterterrorism, element which i know you're a part of and then commando involvement in iraq and afghanistan so before we get to the middle east itself can you just talk me through those tumultuous years of change and sort of the counterterrorism capability and just the mindset shift in what your day-to-day life looks like back home a really unique experience for me um 9-11 in that my patrol was in the field we just deployed to the field i think it was the night before 9-11 um went down east timor and again strangely enough i had reese reese is with my patrol and we're you know uh, just launched into the field um and we're due to spend uh, i think seven days into the field and obviously on that first uh, afternoon 9 11 goes down so we get extracted out of the field after sort of uh about 72 hours thinking hang on a second we're supposed to have another you know three to four days what's going on quickly get back to um our high school location and then the platoon commander pulls us into the office and said, hey, boys, this has gone down. This went down 48 hours ago. So we knew nothing of 9-11 for essentially post 48 hours till, till it went down until we got back to the HQ location. So, yeah, it was like, uh, I mean, like, like everyone says, it was just, you know, a bit surreal or was surreal at the time, sort of trying to look at the images and process what was going on, you know, in the rest of the world. Like what's happening back in Australia? Is my family okay? You know, is the world at war now? Like we're in this isolated, you know, deployment in, in East Timor and then all of a sudden the world's caught fire, so to speak. So yeah, it was it was a time of change and a time of uncertainty and a, a time of um just trying to fight for information on on what was going on in the world. There was lots of, I guess, courses of action going down in terms of, okay, who's going to volunteer? This tactical assault group East Coast is going to be raised. There was only a limited number who, who sort of could line up for that. I had gone to, prior to my deployment into East Timor, I had some personal stuff that I had needed to deal with back in Australia. So I made the hard choice not to be part of that, I guess, first rotation of guys who were going to go back to Sydney, then on to Perth to do the, the tactical assault training. So the first aircraft of lads went back and then, you know, it was the rest of us eventually rolled out and they're off doing obviously their piece with the tactical assault group. I had some courses I need to pick up um, in terms of my reinforcement cycle as well. So the Rio cycle kicked off again. 
Iraq started to come on onto the horizon again. So there's sort of like about a 12 or 18 month period for me where I was sort of busy with reinforcement cycle, doing all my courses. Lads are off doing tag skills and build up. And then uh, towards the end of 2002, I was in Brava Company as a as a team commander when we got the word that um, we're off to Iraq or you know getting in country where you know the locations that we went to to posture for. Um, the Iraq invasion so again it was just like from the time we got back from East Timor to you know getting ready for Iraq it's sort of like 18 months probably close to two years for me but my feet didn't didn't really touch the ground it was just extremely busy with courses and you know preparing my own men uh, my own team within within a uh, commando platoon to to roll into um into Iraq well it doesn't really stop for you since you put your hand up to do commandos because you do the preparation and selection and get ready in that then you're in Timor and Timor for 9-11 and then all what you just described all the courses there and then Iraq and so when you first get to Iraq it's not quite going to Timor it is far away other side of the world and the Middle East has its other uh, I guess history there as well with war and uh, warfare What's your response internally? How do you feel when you find yourself um, on the plane there or on the ground there? Yeah, so my focus was to look after my team, make sure we were prepared as, as best we could, uh, and, and obviously the platoon as well. You know, we worked some massive, massive hours back in Australia in, in preparation. Um, so we're talking about sort of December 2002 at the moment, you know, working massive hours to prepare ourselves, again, just fighting information, fighting for equipment to best prepare ourselves for, for, you know, operations in Iraq. We went on a little bit of leave, came back sort of early January, again, sort of four to six weeks of, of training, and then we flew out of Sydney on Valentine's Day in 2003. Romantic. It's so romantic, yeah. <laughs> and there were so many unknowns, what our jobs were, were we going to get deployed, you know, where the new kids on the block in terms of an SF organisation you know, posturing with a squadron of warfighting veterans from the Special Air Service Regiment. So it was it was a challenging time to to keep the lads focused because there was lots of talk of you know us being in a support role and the squadron doing all the the heavy lifting in, in Iraq. It was a challenge to keep keep the lads focused and you know tune them in. And we went through a number of locations in Jordan in, in through that area in terms of training and and being postured for the launch of operations in, over the border into Iraq. And what were those operations that you were conducting in Iraq in the end? To be honest, we really only rolled out one operation, which was um, into an airfield. Uh, once uh, the squadron had um, secured the airfield, a platoon or two platoons of commandos went in and, and did some, I guess, relief in place in terms of so that allowed the squadron to, to move on to their next mission. We were on the ground for I think it was about a week or so whilst operations were being conducted around us and it was a really interesting time because you could sense the battle going on around us and there was aircraft and you know the skies would get lit up at night on the horizon so we're in the middle of this conflict but not in a great threat ourselves you know we're like okay what's next are we going to step up are we going to conduct some operations with um, the squadron from SASR are we here for a long duration of time are we securing what, what are we actually doing like um, and that again, uh, pretty quickly got flipped on its head. And um, I think it was probably about three, four, maybe a month after the initial invasion into, you know, across the border into Iraq, we found ourselves on, on a plane back home. 
sort of um, mid mid two thousand three at this stage. And it's some time before you find yourself back there in Afghanistan, but that's not to say that in the interim you're resting on your laurels. That's that's still very nine eleven, still very recent mentality and state of the world and continuing to build the commander capability for tag east um i know that uh, you guys were integral for the commonwealth games in 06 can you talk to me a bit about just uh, that ongoing maintaining peak excellence performance for domestic security as well and what that looks like for you tag is very quickly getting upskilled and the ttp so tactics techniques and procedures of how a tag is postured and um, holding the area routine and um, the different, uh, I guess, niche operations within our tags capability. We're starting, we've got a company group at this stage, I guess, who are holding that responsibility. You know, we were sort of, we're talking like 2002, 2004, we didn't really start to do company rotations of tag until probably like 2009. So it was just to trickle in, you know, guys would go and do their uh, CQB course, advanced CQB course, their specialist courses ready to serve in TAG and then it was a trickle system in and then a trickle system out um, of guys rotating in just to hold that capability to the best it could be. So we weren't, the unit was just nowhere near capable or, or in a position to do company rotations at this stage. So, you know, guys, had obviously, as I said, you know, go and do the courses, get the opportunity to trickle in, guys would trickle out. We quickly obviously brought the, the clearance divers on board and training those guys up. CQB, ACQB, you know, them holding, uh, again, different niche capability skills for tasks into, inside the TAG. So all the organisations are, are busy doing their TAG East niche skills. The TAG is located up at Luscombe Field. The rest of the rest of the units down at, um, in the lines at, at Holsworthy uh, into Brookline. So there's this dislocation. Um, the TAG's up there, the rest of the units down there. So it was a bit of an us and them thing at times. Um, depending which you know role that you're in at the time, which you know looking back in hindsight probably caused a little bit, a little bit of friction and a, a little bit of what are you guys doing and and what are you guys doing? You know, obviously, Bravo Company was lucky enough, well not lucky enough, but you know, given the honour to deploy into um, Iraq, and you know, obviously, there's guys looking over the fence going, well, why didn't I get picked for Iraq? Well, you're doing tag duties, you know, that's that's your responsibility for the next 12 or 18 months, so. Yeah, there's a little bit of, I guess, betting in to be done is probably a good term in terms of this is where we want to get to. We want to get to a position where we've got guys doing uh, or prepared for operations uh, domestically being tagged. We want guys to be prepared to deploy overseas at short notice, whether that's you know Iraq, Afghanistan, protective security de- detachments. Uh, and then we want some guys to have a period of time where they can do some professional development, i.e. promotion courses. So I guess there was always that struggle and uh, I don't think it really got bedded into a sort of 2007, maybe 2008, where we had that cycle of, okay, you go and do domestic CT for 12 months, you'll then do six months lead-in and then uh, a time frame of six months deployment into Afghanistan, been out three to four months or a period of time for leave, professional development, and then you're back to phase one where you'll support domestic CT. So you were helping build the wheel of how this all works and you're in those early stages of when it was still under construction. Absolutely. Yeah. So it was a long process and a lot of planning and, you know, um, some really smart, key influential uh, commanding officers and, you know, officers commanding of the commando company groups and, you know, the CEOs at the time, really smart guys who, who had, you know, were forward leaning on, we need a solution, we need a solution. 
but yeah, it was it was certainly interesting times. A lot of time, a lot of stress on you know families because guys were away for crazy amounts of time. You know, whether it was supporting your domestic duties, whether you're preparing for Afghanistan in Afghanistan, promotion courses. It was just like months away. But you know that that's what we did. That's what we were. SF soldiers for is we wanted that challenge. We wanted to be on the forefront. We wanted to be deployed. We wanted to be doing uh, tactical assault group duties because if the unit wasn't going to offer it to us, you know, guys would get out and find that uh, somewhere else or they'd go to Perth and do selection. Rewarding but challenging four to six years between sort of 2003 up to sort of 2007, 2008 for the regiment. We don't have to get into it, but it is a kind of funny uh, switch where so many people aspire to pass selection and get into special forces and there's a great sort of bottleneck and it's a great famous, you know, difficulty, a huge thing to surmount. But then once you get through that and you get the training, you get qualified and get a bit of experience and reputation, then your options open up a bit more and that, yes, there's commanders, there's SAS, there's a lot of private uh, contract work that could be done not just, and outside of Australia as well so then you are the, it's more your oyster to make of it and you're wanting to retain that talent and that uh, skill set and that mileage for the benefit of that's what is not fledgling unit by that point but still you know young compared to say the SAS it's an interesting point because and I often say it to other guys you know if, if we're not offered that challenge and I sort of briefly touched on it earlier if we're not offered that challenge as SF soldiers in our current units we'll be going to go somewhere else and strive for that challenge you know SASR went through I guess an exodus of middle management uh, leaving post Iraq because you know it was like the guys got a little bit of a taste and you know and then there was opportunities to go into some private security and you know in Iraq and Afghanistan massive massive coin obviously there's you know risks involved and I think two commando uh, has probably gone through that at a couple of stages where we're sort of in between Iraq and we're not really involved in Afghanistan. And then there's that sort of two or three years where guys are like, well, that's it. You know, Iraq was our opportunity. I'm now going to get out and, you know, chase some coin, chase some, you know, some some good jobs overseas in, in the private security world. And then sort of 2005, we get a little taste of Afghanistan again, but then it really kicks off sort of back end of 2006 and, you know, up until you know, probably 2014 and later on, you know, back into Iraq for us. What you were speaking about before about the sort of the rotation through and the, I guess the challenges of keeping your men focused and all that, what strikes me there in your description, Ant, is that you're not just got your own career to focus on here, but you are so focused on the well-being of your men and their career and their professional development and You've had that since, you know, you're just a conscious of your nine-man patrol in Timor and how much that widens your lens and sort of what you're keeping on top of the situation there. And then it's happening again in Iraq and uh, while at TAG. And so you've really got this strong sense of leadership, of responsibility, of tribe, as is a word that's used a lot with uh, the military and special forces in particular, I guess. And then you have, you know, years of fostering this tribe and then, it's uh, in, I think, is it 2008, 2009, you find yourself with this tribe heading in back into a conflict in the Middle East, in Afghanistan specifically. It's a really uh, interesting point, Alex. Like that tribe, that team first mentality, that want to look after your mates, is, it's born from hardship. It's born from death and dying. It's born from doing those hard yards, you know, as a private soldier, as, as a lance corporal, as a junior NCO, as a senior NCO. And then, you know, back into my career as a wine officer, wanting to look after everyone around me before myself, you know, it's that team first mentality. 
which a lot of people they try and do, but they it's it's one of those things. It's easier to talk about. And it's easier to say, oh, yeah, team first. Uh, but it's hard. And it's not only hard on the individual, hard on, on, on myself, but it's hard on my family because i got to make sacrifices. I'm sacrificing myself. Um, I'm sacrificing time with my family. But I, this is where I want to be. This is where I need to be. I've got to look after my men. I've got to look after my team. Well, they're your other family too. And not to disparage your family, but then they're another form of family as well that you have different but similar strength of ties to. At the time, it's quite selfish, mate, to be honest. Like, you know, I put my career and and my team and obviously later on, you know, as a company uh, side major within, you know, two commander regiment, you know, I put all that first before my family because I had to. Because if you're not doing that, and you're not doing the job to the best of your ability, to be honest. Well, you've gone from a nine-man patrol. Level of responsibility keeps increasing from you know, patrol level to platoon level, company sergeant major, company level. That, And yet I can tell you're a very empathetic individual. And so that responsibility, that drive to do the best for your men, that's only been intensified by having more men to do your best for. 2006, 2007, I posted to the Royal Military College Dunkroon as a officer. I spent... 12 months as in the uh, Royal Metro College headquarters. And then my second 12 months, um, I was a small group instructor in a small group instructor in first class, um, which is their last six months before um, the officers graduate. So I learned some absolutely fantastic lessons about leadership and I uh, was able to pass on my own leadership lessons to the young uh, officers prior to graduation. But um, I was supposed to go into a different job back in, into the regiment. I guess some manning issues sort of spiked up and then I, I quickly found myself um, as CSM of, of Bravo Company with 12 months to get rid of, to get ready for our, 12 months to get ready for Afghanistan for our deployment sort of commencing February 2009. So again, you know, 2008's a blur of, you know, preparation, exercises, uh, maintaining currency, getting guys current, training our JTACs, um, which are, you know, the joint terminal air control guys who control the aircraft to support us when we're on the ground. Um, all those bolt-on assets that make up a commander company group, um, which you know, is essentially probably 130, 140 men, full capability-wise in terms of, you know, a commander company group rolling into Afghanistan. Incident Response Regiment is, is raising their capability and supporting us. So there's lots of plugins, lots of resourcing problems, solutions, you know, being sought, um, supporting the officer commanding. But, you know, we, we had a fantastic 12 months. We, we were prepared and primed, ready to roll back end of 2008. Brava Company had conducted, you know, some really successful operations on their previous rotation in 2007. Unfortunately, we suffered the the death of uh, Luke Worsley, who was killed in, in 2007 with, with Bravo Company. And a lot of those soldiers, junior NCOs, senior NCOs, it sort of stepped up into the new, I guess, new new positions promoted. So we had taken on little little reinforcements. Um, so the company pretty much looked exactly the same as it was 2007 going into 2008. We did take on about 12 Rios who were, who had just finished the reinforcement cycle and um, there was a bit of toing and froing in terms of where they were going to go, but we took on 12 guys. I think it was about March, April 2008. Um, so they had about eight, eight or nine months with us um, straight off the back of reinforcement cycle to train with their with their call signs ready for operations in Afghanistan started 2009. So, yeah, I look back now and it was just like, it's just a blur, but some of my best times of soldiering was, was in that period of time. A blur of training and hard work is very much a theme of your career so far, Ant. Yeah. <laughs>
Yeah. I guess, can you give me an overview of your time in Afghanistan, what the situation like then is on the ground? At that point, the work Bravo Company is assigned to do and uh, some of the memorable moments from that trip. The company was sort of complete on the ground around about February, sort of back end of February 2009 and quickly gone you know, into you know certification training, make sure we were certified, a couple of nursery i guess with the company that's going out you know i guess the key leadership within brava company would go out and accompany these guys on what we term nursery patrols or operations um, missions etc so again because we had so much corporate knowledge from a previous rotation 2007 and it's now 2009 that corporate knowledge was still apparent we, obviously we had new alphas and bravos being the platoon commanders and the platoon sergeants in in the commando platoons but there was a lot of knowledge in terms of some really robust smart just absolute team commanders who were absolute thrusters absolute war fighters who had covered themselves in nothing but glory on, on previous rotations and you know their time in tag had really poshed them well so our first operation was outside of um, I guess our AO in, in Tarankout close to us was a, another large force who were, who were conducting a relief in place of a large scale of their so we were tasked with uh, disruption operations down in the Shambrack Valley. So through Shambrack Valley into Hellman Valley to conduct some disruption. So these guys could obviously relief in place as in go home and new lads were coming in. So we spent the best part of probably two weeks preparing vehicles, ammunition, rations, resupply. It was going to be an extended operation. We were told to plan for 30 days outside the wire, which is a significant amount of time, you know, on the go, outside the wire, high threat, uh, warfighting environment. So for me, I guess there was a lot of unknowns in terms of how to prepare. There was a lot of, you know, I guess guidance provided and just leaning forward and, and finding solutions to problems to prepare us as best we could for an extended operation. So this is, you know, obviously 2009, we're cruising around in, you know, SRVs, light-skinned vehicles. We had four Bushmasters um, within the company at this time. So, yeah, SRVs, the LRPVs, which were for our mortars and our and our four-wheel motorbikes as well. So extremely busy period of time. Felt like it was a blur trying to get my feet on the ground, trying to understand the flow of operations in Afghanistan. And then obviously we've got this massive uh, operation extended period of time that we're going to roll outside the wire for. Because it's interesting that by this point, you've been in the military over 20 years. You're very experienced, but you're always learning and that's because you're in a new role or you're conducting a new kind of operation or you're in a new country or all the above and it's just you are always being challenged to use your deep reservoir of knowledge and skills but also it still actually challenges you in turn. Yeah. I mean, as a soldier, junior NCO, senior NCO, officer, junior officer, senior officer, we probably more so in special operations, you never stop learning, you know, being a sponge and, and like I say to all the other guys, even, you know, the work I do now is, you know, be a sponge, always be fighting for information to to better yourself, to better your organisation, to better your team. So I felt like that was my job as the company sergeant major was to be the man behind the scenes, just being the grey man, but making sure all those boxes were ticked. The preparation, the detailed preparation, the detailed preparation into our rehearsals, um, which is a great strength of, um, you know, special operations is the detail we put into our rehearsals. I just wanted to be busy, prepared, because I knew if I was, all my call signs that, you know, I was supporting essentially and all the lads I was supporting would be as well so yeah crazy busy 
but super enjoyable times. Absolutely. And this 2009 oh, operations in Afghanistan have been going for a while. So I imagine my understanding of this period is you're starting to have more measurable effects on quality of life for the local population. Uh, you guys are at a level, you're doing your jobs that professionally that well there must have been a lot of professional and personal gratification and satisfaction in that you're on the ground you feel like you're making a difference you can see those impacts in real time absolutely like to see the company who was there you know they were obviously ripping out as we were coming in and the professionalism of these guys and in the handover briefs and you know some i guess data of what they'd achieved during their four months on the ground and it was just like okay we've you know we've, we've, we've got our hands full here but we're more than prepared to conduct, you know, special operations in Afghanistan to, um, you know, support the Australian mission or, you know, coalition mission in Afghanistan. So, yeah, it was exciting times. And I think, you know, going into that first job, there was a lot of, not hesitation, but just unknowns for, for myself um, in terms of, you know, what we needed to do or how we need to prepare. Or, But saying that, you know, we are prepared, we are ready you know, ready to roll outside the wire once we got, you know, the go for that first mission. So, exciting times. And, Ant, is this first mission when Sergeant Brett Till is killed? Because just looking at sort of the timeline of when you arrive and the 19th of March when he passes, I wonder if that's an overlap there. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that was an extremely challenging time. I guess to take a step back, we rolled outside the wire, I think it was late on the 17th, moved through IAO and, and we're entering the Shambrack Valley, and um, which was, you know, um, named IED Valley because of the, the IED threat was, was so high. And we quickly found ourselves um, with, you know, 45 plus vehicles, five to 10 metres apart, you know, big Congo line of commando uh, operators in vehicles moving through the Shambrack Valley, which there are some pictures of the Shambrack Valley, but it's like it's, it's nothing like I've seen here in Australia. It's like these massive spur lines either side and it's this bowl in the middle and it's probably, you know, at its widest, probably, you know, three to five kilometres on the base and, and then you've got these massive high ground. So you always felt like someone's watching us. And there was always this threat of, you know, being engaged or, you know, a remote firing of an IED. So, you know, Dan and his team did an outstanding job pathfinding for us, you know, through the Shambrack Valley. We essentially went at walking pace for 24 hours. We were in tick a couple of times. And it was the morning of the, obviously the 19th when, I think it was about 9.30 when Brett and his team were, were clearing out the front and um, he came across an IED, attempted to neutralise it, attempted to lift it. Unfortunately, he, he was too close to the IED when it, when it detonated and he was instantly killed. So I guess for me, that had a massive impact and you know, that happened in 2009 and 2000, you know, we're in 2022 now. So a period of time has passed there, but it's, it's always been really hard for me to talk about. And to be honest, I've only really only, only been able to talk about it probably the last sort of three or four years. It was an extremely trying time for me as a company sergeant major and dealing with a, a death and dying such, at, such, at any stage of an operation, but at such an early stage of uh, a protracted, you know, thirty-plus day operation in the field, we've had a, a KIA killed in action. It probably impacted me far more, looking back now in hindsight, than than I'd sort of anticipated, to be honest. And as I said, yeah, it was an extremely challenging time, day two or three into an, a protracted operation. But you know, we, we quickly repostured, did what we needed to do to get Brett out of the field. 
and um, you know continue on with operations. You talk about being surprised or how much it affected you and it's one of those things where you're a smart guy you know that you're going to afghanistan and special forces that the possibility of casualty is there it's already been happening during the time australia has been over there so intellectually you know this may occur and obviously um, brett himself an explosive ordnance disposal technician the risk for his job is very real but then the actual reality of it uh, happening we spoke earlier about you preparing your mental toughness for commando selection because you knew there was something you had to mentally prepare but uh, losing someone like that that's not something you can mentally prepare for you can't know or forecast how you're going to feel about the situation or how hard it's going to hit you but then you've got to also have the pressure of you've got everyone else there to look after and the operation's still happening you've got to keep going yeah that's what it quickly turned into is there's nothing we can do for Brett now. We've evacuated him from the field. You know, we're not going to get the opportunity to, you know, farewell him back in TK uh, on the ramp ceremony. So we reflected at different times in the field, which was extremely challenging. But it quickly turned into, okay, I've now got to support the lads, you know, going through their own grieving process. Dan and his team from, you know, IRR, it's beyond words how, you know, they just got on with the mission after losing Brett. We're all challenged. You know, we didn't really get the opportunity to grieve or reflect a month after when we, we sort of rolled out of the field and, and back into TK after being on continuous uh, operations for, for a month. That was just how the, the cookie crumbled for us in terms of being able to, to grieve and pay our respects to Brett and I guess for certain guys to be able to communicate back home to his family and things like that. So, yeah, it was, as I said, like probably one of the most challenging times in my career, to be honest, is, it was that uh, period of time. Because that happens early in that specific operation. It happens early in your deployment, I guess. How does that shape the rest of your time in Afghanistan, I mean, how much longer are you there for and how does that affect, not just in terms of your, say, your mental health or you um, grieving and thinking about Brett specifically, but also just generally how you've then got to carry on uh, your remaining commando duties and leadership and uh, responsibility and care for the other men. You, you, the missions don't change, but you've still, now you've got the, I'm sure, or uh, this extra weight or burden of wanting to keep everyone safe. Yeah, totally. Like, there's probably things I should have done that I didn't do and there's probably things I did that I shouldn't have done, you know, post that time of, of, of losing Brett. You know, Damien Tomlinson, his vehicle ran over an IED four days after Brett was killed. Uh, sorry, no, it was about 2nd or 3rd of April and Brett was killed on the 19th of March. So two significant challenges for the company to sort of deal with, you know, that, that night conducting some pretty aggressive operations against uh, the Taliban down in Helmand Valley. And the, the course line was broken up into a different shape. And the course line's operating independently in support of each other. And obviously Brett's vehicle runs over an, an ID and he loses both his legs and, and one of his arms. The guys who worked tirelessly that night, we had a doctor with us as part of our numbers doc and the medics and the combat first aiders who worked with great courage and skill and, and honour to save life that night. And we had him out of the field on an aircraft, you know, going back to TK within about 50, 56 minutes post-blast. So you know, when we talk about the golden hour of getting someone out of the field, you know, we, we tick that box and at the end of the day probably saved his life. It's kind of weird. I don't even know how to put it in words. It's, it's not weird, but, you know, one of the lads who played an integral part in saving his life, Scotty Palmer, you know, he, he was killed a couple of that, I guess, a couple, a couple of years later in, in an aircraft uh, crash. So... And I've spent some time with, with Scotty's dad, Ray, and 
it's just uh, plays on your mind or it's, it's, you know, you can sort of sit back and, and smile and go, well, you know, Scotty did his job, he, he saved Damo's life and he loses his own life. So, but again, it, it, it's, you know, it's part of, you know, being a soldier and you know, being a special force soldier, it's what we do. You know, we, we do our job to the highest of ability regardless of the situation and we always put our teammates first. Well, on that sentiment there, and what's a moment you look back on from that Afghanistan deployment just with joy, pride at uh, what you and your men achieved? What's something you look back there and go, I'm so proud of how they conducted themselves that day or how we did in this engagement or this operation or what's a moment you look back on like that? A funny but a warm, fuzzy feeling I got was, again, it was on this same operation down in, in Hellman Valley and we'd been out in the field for about 15 days at this time. So I think it was our first or second resupply. And resupply occurred by an American uh, C-130 aircraft. You can imagine 40 or about 45 vehicles, you know, give or take 100 or so commandos. It's resupply is, is fairly large. So the C-130 or C-130s to, to supply us on the ground with fuel, ammunition, food, resources, consumables, it was about 12 pallets, pallet loads of equipment to, to resupply us, you know, engine parts, spare tyres. The terrain was extremely hard on vehicles, so we've, we've got diffs being replaced, motors being replaced. It's, yeah, it's, it's massive. We do our resup, resups at night and the aircraft would, would fly in at about 1,000 feet We'd secure like a large area and, you know, establish comms 20 minutes out, you know, five minutes out, and then they'd light up the drop zone with, with IR. This particular night, and obviously that's the, the primary role of, well, not the primary, but one of the roles of the company sergeant major is to make sure this resupply gets to us. This particular night, I'm, I'm, I can't get comms with the aircraft and I'm fighting for comms and I've got the company SIG and we've got all these SIGs chasing around trying to get call signs, raise this, raise that. But it came back to... The SOPs that we'd established with the American aircraft was if we can't establish communications 60 seconds before the aircraft is due to drop, um, we'll light up an IR stroke. And they said, yeah, man, like, you know, you know how Americans talk, God damn, man, we'll drop on that, you know, IR stroke. If you light it up 60 seconds, or, you know, whatever out, we'll, we'll drop. You know? And I'm like, right, we're fighting for comms and I'm looking at the watch and it's just counting down. And um, all the boys are out running security and I can hear the aircraft and I'm like, okay, this is it. I'm gonna, I'm just going to light this IR strobe in the middle of the DZ and I hope they drop. Counting down the time, I light up the strobe and then these aircraft closely followed about 1,000 feet, maybe may even lower, might, might have been 1,000 to 500 feet, but it would seem like they were, we could reach out and almost touch them. They dropped 12 pallet loads worth of equipment and it fell on the ground within about five to 700 metres of spacing. Convenient. We relied on our training and our, our SOPs, our standard operating procedures and you know our rehearsals. Everything sort of came together. So whilst it wasn't a in contact or you know in combat situation, I guess as the company sergeant major, it was a moment for me of you know being able to do my job, so the guys could have all their resources and we continued we could continue to fight the fight on the ground, you know, for another sort of two weeks. So and off the back of that, obviously you can imagine fourteen pallets and and all the rubbish and equipment that it leaves. Uh, Steve, the uh, the OC, said to me, and I sort of said to him, "What are we going to do with all this?" You know pallets and parachutes and rigging and it's this massive pile i said to him look we can light it and we can just burn it and we'll you know we'll continue off we'll drive off and you know it'll be destroyed we'll put some thermite grenades in there we'll just light this thing up the last vehicle out of the vehicle drop-off point happened to be can baird's vehicle 
this night. So he was he was tasked with you know lighting this almighty flame in the middle of Helmand Valley. And I remember driving out and giving Cam the, the nod. You know, we're all under NVGs and stuff, and it's dark and required them, you know, maintaining tactical advantage. And then this almighty fire erupts in the middle of Helmand Valley, and it pretty much lights up the valley like a candle. <laughs> just look on Cam's face. He, he's just got this chuckle and he's he smile as, as we drive off into the into the darkness. So it was a moment of humour, um, I think, for the for the rest of the company. <laughs> Well, Ange, that Afghanistan deployment obviously is a significant experience for you and the men you were over there with. You do the job correctly, successful each time, as you said. You come home and your career in the military continues, deployments to the Middle East continue. And I know there's been various other veterans I've interviewed on this podcast that have been in those subsequent deployments and the service of the 2nd Commando Regiment is ongoing, outstanding. It bears cost and sacrifice, something we're all uh, familiar with, which leads a bit into some of the work you're doing today, which I'll get to in a sec, but just to acknowledge you continue your own outstanding service. You finish up in the army as the special operations liaison officer with AFP counterterrorism. Now today you're a high performance consultant for the Canberra Raiders rugby league team. Another um, major piece of work you do is your advocacy for the Commando Welfare Trust. And I was hoping you could talk to me a bit more about the trust and uh, some of the importance of that work. And I guess this, for me, this comes back to your passion for your tribe, for those men and their families and uh, doing right by them. And I can sort of see that link from your own service history into why you do that work now. So can you speak more to that for me, please? Yeah, for sure. So I don't really have a, apart from um, Mark Smithhurst, who's obviously, um, you know, leads the trust and, you know, his name goes without speak in terms of, you know, the special operations community here in Australia, but not only in Australia, but within the US as well, like highly respected, a man, you know, and a, and a leader, probably one of our finest. I don't really have a formal, I guess, functional role within the Commando Welfare Trust. Sort of towards the back end of my career, I found myself, you know, my mental health was really, really challenged from deployments and, you know, all through my career. And I found it quite cathetic to physically challenge myself, but at the same time to raise awareness and, and, and money for the Commando Welfare Trust. So that sort of started probably back in 2007 when I was posted to the Royal Military College. I, I got a bunch of lads and long story short, we essentially rode our bikes from Norseman in WA to Sejuna in South Australia, across the Nullarbor Plain, west to east, 12 days, about 1,300 kilometres, raising awareness and, and, and money for Mind Their Welfare Trust. We raised about 35 grand for the trust, which again, it isn't a massive amount of money, but every, like, you know, Mark Smithers tells me every time, you know, I do a fundraiser, every dollar counts for the trust. And it's not only the dollars, it's the awareness as well. You know, that was an outstanding 20 odd days. Every morning, we'd, I'd read the record of service out to one of the lads we'd, we'd lost. And obviously, back in, you know, 2007, we hadn't lost as many lads as we have today. So, but it was, it was a moment of reflection before we jumped on our bikes and, you know, rode our 100 odd Ks for the day. And again, I've, I've done various, uh, I guess, physical challenges because I find, again, that principle of team first, it's my way of giving back to support the widows and, and the children of the lads we've lost in you know, Afghanistan and some other locations as well. So again, there's no formal part that I, that I play with the Command Welfare Trust, but it's just my way of fighting some of my own demons by giving back to, to the trust. Well, it's uh, wonderful that you're able to find that 
cathartic healing process in a benevolent way uh, that you are. And I can imagine even say with your work with the Raiders, you can apply some that military mentality, that classic daily renewable contract mentality from commandos into their teamwork as well, as well as the team first ethos. So it's wonderful that your career has had many highs. It's had some lows, but you're able to channel so much of that for good going forward into your life and to the benefit of others as a result. Yeah, absolutely. It's really coincidence that, and I think we often say it in hindsight, but everything you do in your career leads to opportunities at that time. And that's pretty much what the opportunity gave me with the Raiders what I bring to them is it's all military not skills but military knowledge and mindset and you know mental preparation and and breathing and controlled breathing and controlling your anxiety in those moments and I always felt that I had some knowledge some attributes some some skills to pass on to a professional organization but I never sought it out and I guess to be honest I never really thought it was going to come to reality but it's an absolute outstanding environment to work in. I, I guess it's it's a bit surreal. I grew up, you know, supporting the Raiders to have an opportunity to, you know, support their day to day running and, and and the training and you know what we're trying to achieve within within the club each year. You know, some days I'm driving into work and I'm pinching myself that you know a fortunate fortunate position to be in and and, and I cherish it every day. Well, Ant, I am sure your Uncle Don would be so proud of you and all you achieved in your career. But with that in mind, would 16-year-old Ant be more impressed by all that you've achieved for the commando career or the Raiders Association? <laughs> I'm pretty sure it would be for the Raiders, but no, I'm extremely lucky. But you, know, you make your own luck, as they say. Um, I've worked hard. Uh, I've always tried to do my best. You know, haven't always made the right decisions or you know had the right outcome, but I've always, you know, every day I've gone to work, I've always strived for excellence. And I think if you know if people can do that or you know hold that value close to their thought process or close to their heart, they'll be winning each day. Well, and those are some great lessons that I'm sure our listeners can take with them and reflect on. Thank you so much for your service and your time today. Thanks, Alex. Really appreciate it. I'm Alex Lloyd, and you've been listening to Life on the Line. More of that track in just a moment. Our thanks go to Ant for coming on the show. Keep an eye out on his social media at Ant underscore Plater on Instagram for updates on his own show, Double Tap, the Operator's Podcast. For other episodes with Somalia veterans who later went into commandos in Season 3, check out number 47, Graham Connolly. Well, these guys didn't ask my permission. They just shot him. 1,400 metres, clean kill, and the bomb stopped. And number 54... H volume one. It's we're going through that door or we're sliding down that rope or we're blowing this or we're diving in here or flying in there or whatever. And this is it. It doesn't matter how many of us come out. For a deeper insight into Somalia, listen to the season five interview, number 106, Greg Hopgood. All you could see was just kids just like their bodies were like shrink wrap, no nourishment at all and no hair. It was just like skin over bone. To learn more about Tag East, in season four, check out number 97, Paul Kale. And then we've hit into this open creek line and got hammered by a machine gun and then just made our way over to a flank to sort of get out of that killing ground. 
and to hear the inspiring story of Damien Tomlinson from the man himself, check out in audio or on YouTube our video podcast, number 105, Damien Tomlinson. He was watching it and he got to watch my car explode. The issue with something like that happening is everyone in a huge radius has heard it. You know, if they're ready for us to be coming down, they now know where we are. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Theme music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Closing music, The Hell Beyond, by The Externals, a track inspired by this podcast. Thank you for listening, and lest we forget. A man sure walks slow, mighty step be your last. You can steal the mind quickly and it can harden your heart. And you yearn for your family, and you long for your wife, and all that you're missing from a wonderful life. But out here I'm a soldier, and a long way from home, and I gave up those comforts a long time ago. Out here in the dirt, and the heat, and the dry, there's no time for nostalgia, less acquaintance of mine. Just then I looked round, and I caught Rowdy's eyes, and it snapped me back quicker than he raised up his size. He squeezed up some rounds from behind a mud wall as I dived to me guts and I started to crawl. Well, I've tried to forget how I tried. Erupted. Shit scared with self-doubt My throat was bone dry And me heart filled me mouth As the shots cracked around us I remember the high But it wasn't excitement I was just terrified The steel tore through clothing Mud walls, trees and flesh As I emptied my bag Towards nothing at best And as I crawled forward And I looked through my sights I turned and saw Rowdy Give a wink and he shouted with me as he sprung to his feet with his gun up and firing out into the green and the dirt all around him like rain on a pond as he made his way into the hell just beyond Ooh. Well I've tried to forget how I've tried but it's hard to and fire. I remember the dust, how the grip cut me eyes. We battled and fought through the streets, maze and mud. And when I reached Rowdy, he was covered in blood. I crawled up beside him and I laid by his side. Not sure it was sweat or tears sting in his eyes. He grabbed for my hand and he winced through a smile as the din all around him fell silent and quiet. Try to forget how I've tried
Plymouth dusted off Me best mate in a bag As I licked out a rolly And we passed round a drag We picked up and moved We were dog tired and beat We were the dreaming awake And the walking asleep As I sat with a beer Looking over the dash And I drank and I pondered The shit day we'd had But nothing like rowdy So I raised up my glass And I whispered to old mate It was over too fast Well I've tried to forget 